0: This is General Ike. I'm here with Micah Handler, founder of the YMCA Jerusalem Youth Chorus. This is Building Jerusalem.
1: (laughs) Alone. Just know you're not alone.
0: Cause I'm gonna make this place your home. Settle
1: down. place your home.
0: the YMCA Jerusalem Youth Chorus with HOME. I'm sitting here with founder Micah Handler. Micah, hi. Hi, Pleasure to have you here. It's great to be here. So I wanted to start uh, not with the chorus. I wanted to start with your musical career in Yale. Mm. Could you talk a bit about that? How did that get started?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, Well, I mean, I've been singing basically wherever I've been in my life, whether it was at home or in college or here in Jerusalem. Um, and for me, singing has always been about finding or building community. Um, I found that that's a really meaningful part about creating music with other people and particularly singing with other people. is It's a way of forming connection, of building trust, of creating shared experience. Um, yeah, so I've always really enjoyed singing with others. So when I was at Yale, I sang a lot of a cappella. I sang and directed a group called The Dukes Men, and then I sang with a group called The Wiffen Poofs. Um, and uh, both of those groups actually have had influences and sort of holdovers and impact on the work that, that I'm doing in Jerusalem as well. So, like, Home, the song that you just heard, uh, was, we, we recorded and filmed that song with Sam Shuey, who's a YouTube superstar, um, but I sang with him and the Dukes Men, so we're old friends, and that's, you know, how we got to make that video. Um, or, like, with the Whiffenpoofs, different groups, the Whiffenpoofs are the oldest collegiate a cappella group in the United States, or really in the world, um... And as a result of that sort of long history, they have a lot of connections all over the world. And so every year the Wiffin and poofs take a world tour to like more than 20 countries. And so a number of the people who I met with whom I met in different countries with the Wiffin poofs, I've now sort of kept relationships with cause that's, you know, cause they were great people and I like relationships with people and um, some of them have then turned into chorus hosts as well, like uh, our friends in Japan, or uh, other contacts from the Yale singing community. Basically, made it possible for us to do our U.S. tour in 2015 in June. So, like all kinds of all kinds of different wonderful blessings have come from singing at Yale. I uh, I I think I remember you saying that
0: singing the Wolf and wolf is like the closest someone can get to being a rock star in
1: college? I don't know about the closest that someone can get to being a rock star because one could actually be a rock star, but it's definitely the closest I could get to being a rock star. Fair. <laughs> um, okay.
0: So uh, coming from that successful rock star-esque career in, in the Yale Whip and Post, how, how did you get from there to founding the YMCA, Jerusalem Youth Chorus?
1: um well ultimately it's a it's a journey that started way before I was at Yale um I you know as I was saying I've been singing since more or less I was born and singing has always been for me about finding community um and then building community when I was in high school I saw that I could start um uh, if I started a singing group, I could actually create a new community, a circle of friends where there hadn't previously been one. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. Like, I want to do that. And I could empower people by showing them that they could sing. It's like I could I could give them the gift of their own voice, which was, like, really cool. And so I wanted to do more of that. Around that same time when I was in high school, I participated in the Seeds of Peace uh, Program, which is a summer camp and dialogue program for teens from conflict regions and Americans. And um, when I was at camp, I was, you know, I had come, you know, thinking that I had a fairly educated and robust background in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And what I learned in these sort of dialogue groups was really that I had a very robust understanding of 50% of the story, um, which blew my mind. Not because I thought I knew everything, but because the things that I didn't know were so obvious, but I couldn't see them because of the way I had been educated about this place. Um, And so that was a very powerful experience for me In terms of not just what I learned, but also in terms of the meta process of how education can both close or open somebody's mind. Because I felt my mind had been closed. And then through dialogue it was opened.
0: Could you tell
1: us a bit about what some of those obvious things were? Yeah, so... Growing up, I went to a Jewish school through sixth grade and I came from a fairly sort of down-the-middle American-Jewish-Zionist like family. And, you know, I I was taught things like basically any criticism of Israel is basically rooted in anti-Semitism or, um, you know, the Palestinians, you know, just resent you know, Israel because they, like, hate Jews or things like that um, that completely ignored the very obvious realities like, no, maybe they don't like Israel because they were kicked out of their homes or because they're living under oppression or because their cousin was killed by the police or, you know, there are all kinds of different things that, you know, again, are, like, pretty obvious but I couldn't see them because I had been taught otherwise um, and I'd never been exposed to any of those stories. Right. Um, And I'd been taught through a filter that effectively made me blind to any of those stories or facts that I might have picked up along the way because it has sort of a counter-argument to everything. Or it's like, oh, but that's really propaganda. Or, oh, that's really, you know, not you know, not the real version of the truth or, you know, something like that. Um, So in dialogue, it's a very powerful process because you're sitting there with somebody who you know you can trust because they, like, prevented you from, like, falling off a ropes course or they, like, helped you with whatever problem you were having yesterday or you've built this relationship with them. And then when they're talking to you about how their, like, cousin was, like, shot in front of their eyes, like, playing soccer and they're like crying, like they're not lying to you. And it's not propaganda. And you know that that's true. And then you're like, wow, that's A, really messed up. And B, why didn't I know things like this? Why couldn't I see things like this? Um, And so it was a very powerful process for me. Um, in terms of what I learned, and then in terms, again, of the meta level of how education can open or close somebody's mind. Um, Because my mind had been closed. And then through dialogue, it was opened. Um, And so I became a very strong believer in that kind of a process, because it changed my life. And I stayed involved with Seeds of Peace, and the more time I spent involved with Seeds, the more I saw that music could work even in a context like ethnic conflict, where people are supposed to have nothing in common and hate each other. Um, Music could still work as a community-building force, as a way of creating shared identity, as a way of bringing people together, not in a cliche sense, but in a way of really like doing something together and doing something together that, that brought together a sense of who we are. That like, because we're doing this thing together, we are part of the same thing. Um, and I saw that that was very powerful at camp in terms of just like even the camp songs that people would sing. Um, that they had a strong sense of identity built into them. And so that then... And, and of course, that creation of a shared identity was really important in the dialogue, like, to sort of complement the dialogue process. Because if you have kids who are coming from places where their national identity is based on rejection of the other's national identity, which Israeli and Palestinian national identities are, um, then... Basically, you can't move forward in dialogue without betraying who you are. You know, you can't actually really acknowledge somebody else's identity without saying that it delegitimizes your own. If the only way you define yourself is as like an Israeli or Palestinian like national person, um, whereas if you have a new shared identity as like, for in this case, the identity of the seed of peace, or just the seed. And the goal of a seed is to like listen and create new relationships and be empathetic and learn new things then all of a sudden if you're doing those things you're still fulfilling who you are because you're also a seed you know whereas otherwise you know you might be still dealing grappling with the challenges that that poses for your national identity but it's not your only identity so, anyway, music was part of the way that at camp we sort of substantiated that identity by singing songs like "I Am a Seed of Peace" and then like talking about like what that means. That was like the camp song. Um, so things like that helped. So anyway, I by the point by the time I was thinking about this, I was already in college and I was a music counselor at camp, and then I theorized more or less what I just told you in an ethnomusicology paper that I published and presented at a number of conferences, basically about how music works in combination with dialogue at seats. Um, by that point, I had been still singing a lot, I had studied Hebrew um, at this Jewish school that I was at, and then in college I wanted to study Arabic, um, so I did. And then by the time I wrote this paper, I was thinking, okay, so this is really interesting that you can use music in this really powerful way. But it's nice that you can do this at a summer camp in Maine where you control all the variables and no one can leave. But can you do this on the ground in Jerusalem where you control none of the variables and everyone can leave? And... That then became my senior thesis, which was exploring, basically, if and how this kind of model could be replicated on the ground in Jerusalem. By that point, I learned many things, less about models and more about the realities of trying to work on the ground in Jerusalem, which were very useful. Um, And ultimately, I decided that I wanted to give it a try. So I graduated from college, and I came to Jerusalem and started the chorus.
0: Cool. That is, that just um, is something that moves me so much, because I see so many people who just slept through their senior thesis, and it has nothing to do with anything they're interested in. Right. I think you're the first person I've ever met who built his senior, senior thesis in the
1: world. All right, well, thank you. I'm very lucky I'm very lucky actually that I that I did that research because it prevented me from making a lot of mistakes. I made a lot of mistakes anyway, but they were different mistakes.
0: So could you could you give me an idea of something like what is it that before your senior thesis you thought hey this might have been a great idea but by the end you were like no no
1: bad bad. Um one of the things like before my before my thesis I was always thinking about things in terms of the goals of like a program like this in terms of what kind of transformative impact you're looking for or whatever. But I didn't realize how people, I mean, it's not something I thought, but it's just not something I thought about at all about how people who actually participate in these programs participate in them for reasons that are completely different than the reasons that the program exists by necessity. Like they're not joining a program to be transformed. You know, nobody like joins something so they can change their opinions or so they can like see that they didn't see everything before. You know, people think that they know everything and that's sort of how we operate as humans. But people really join programs like this because maybe they're fun, they provide an opportunity to learn English, to travel, to make new friends, You know, to some extent, people are really curious also to learn, like, about people from the other side of Jerusalem and, like, what their lives are like. And they may also want to have a chance to tell those people what their lives are like. Um, You know, and this is a cool chance to do that. Um, All kinds of reasons. But you have to think about why somebody would want to join a program like this and then address them in that way. Because if I went around to schools in East West Jerusalem being like, hey, we have this really cool like, conflict transformation like, peace program, people would be like, you're an idiot. We're not in the 90s. Go home. Um, but when I come and say, hey, I have this really cool music program, where you're gonna learn to sing and perform and make music videos and travel internationally and make new friends. And it's a really great community of friends where people like accept other people for who they are. And you're going to get a chance to learn English. And um, you're also going to have a chance to tell people from the other side of Jerusalem, like what your life is like living in Jerusalem and whatever you would want them to know, because, like, they have no opportunity otherwise to, like, learn about you. Um, and you can also hear what they have to say. Um, and it's going to be really amazing, you should audition. You know, and then people are like, oh, that's cool, like, I could do that. And, like, some people don't. Some people, once they hear that there would be, like, Jews and Arabs in it, will say, like, halas, like, I don't want to be involved. Like, lo bishvili. Um... And some people would even go so far as to intimidate other people to say, like, you shouldn't do it. But there are enough people who think that that's cool and who are open enough, even if they've never had an experience like this before, but they think it sounds cool. And so they'll try it. And then they get hooked because it's awesome. And it becomes their family. I mean, not their only family, but a family for them. And uh, that's a very powerful thing.
0: So that's something, like, before... Before you did your senior thesis, you would have been a lot more focused on what's the transformational thing going on, whereas afterwards you're more like, hey, how do we have fun here, kids? And then the transformation sort of
1: happens. Well, no, not, that, not so much that I'm not focused on the model or the transformative impact, but I know when to talk about it and when to talk about other things. Right. Gotcha. So you have to present something like this differently to different people that people don't join programs like this for the reasons that donors would fund a program like this. Right, got it. Um, Or a reason that academics would be interested in a program like this. Like, they're all different ways of talking about it. Um, And that's really what I learned when I saw, like, why people were joining certain programs and not other programs and how the way the program was structured and marketed, basically, to the youth... Um, impacted what the programs could do, and who joined, and why they joined. And that's really what I learned in my thesis. So it was very interesting. And it helped me to not sound like an idiot when I went into school as my first year.
0: So what sort of uh, mistakes did you end up making anyway?
1: Oh, uh, well, every day there's a new one. Mostly, the hardest part has really been things that I have to deal with, like... Organizations and have to deal with management and have to deal with um, how to build teams and structures and how to work within structures that might not work and all those things. Um, that's definitely been the hardest part consistently. Um, and I think that that's not because that's objectively the hardest challenge, but it's because I had experience already with the other things like the hard part is like dealing with these right Palestinian conflict <laughs> but I'd already spent eight years like working on that and learning about it and learning how to address it and learning the nuances of it and whatever whereas I had zero experience managing a project so that was the hardest part for sure and is the hardest part still
0: okay so what so moving from like your, your list of mistakes, what was the moment for you where you were like, wow, this is happening?
1: Um, well, the moment that I was like, wow, this is happening was actually during my last year in college when I had decided that I was going to go to Jerusalem to start this project. But then I was trying to figure out how to do it. And I was trying to find funding, and I was trying to get advice from people, and I was trying to find connections. And everyone kept telling me I needed to talk to Forsan Hussein, who at that time was the CEO of the Y, um, where the course is based now. Um, And everyone was just saying, you have to talk to Forsan, you have to talk to Forsan, you have to talk to Forsan. So I got connected to Forsan, and we were having a Skype call. I was still in the States at this time. And he was asking me about who I was and about my vision. And then he switched to Arabic to see if I could follow along. And then he switched to Hebrew to see if I could follow along. And then it became a job interview. And then he basically said, how would you like your project to start at the Y? I was like, wow, that would be amazing. So that's when I really thought, wow, this is like happening. Because then it had like a base on the ground. It was like a real thing that was rooted in Jerusalem. Um, So that was a... That was definitely a big break. Um, And we've been at the Y from the beginning. Um, And that, of course, enabled me then to propose, like in the sort of fellowship that I ultimately got to move to Jerusalem and start the chorus, it was, I'm sure, very helpful to say, look, we have a local institution that is like sponsoring this project. Not just like, I have a crazy idea, you know. So, So that, I think, was the first moment where I was like, wow, this is like real. So what is the, the YMCA Jerusalem Youth Chorus? How does it work? What does it look like? So it's a chorus and a dialogue program for Israeli and Palestinian teens from East and West Jerusalem. Um, in the chorus, we meet once a week for a four-hour rehearsal that consists of singing, dialogue, singing. So the music really holds the group in place and creates this sense of community and creates opportunities really for the fun personal relationships to grow and for people to do something beautiful together that they love. And in the middle, the dialogue kind of challenges all of that, um, but in a way that's necessary because otherwise reality will crush it. If you don't allow any sort of conflict into the room, even in a controlled way, in in a dialogue space, um, then it will be very difficult to deal with conflict when it imp- when it breaks into the room because of like a war or something. Um, so. Um, Yeah, the music really holds the group and is is kind of a warm-up and a cool-down from the dialogue process in a lot of ways. And then the dialogue in the middle introduces various elements that are really critical to discuss when you have a group of Palestinians and Israelis, of guys and girls who are teenagers, of Jews, Christians, and Muslims, of people who come from more sort of lower or higher socioeconomic status of people who speak different languages of people who have different sets of rights um, of people who come from different places Um, all of these complexities are in the chorus and you need a space to talk about them because otherwise it will be too complicated um Whereas with dialogue, it operates as a space to really unpack some of that not all of it obviously, but like to go into some of those issues and learn from the people who are your friends what life is like to be them and what they experience what's their daily reality what is their people's reality what do they believe what do they not believe what do they think is important? What do they want for their lives? Things like that. Um, Which is really important. So it ultimately, it uses the foundation of the relationships that are built by music as windows into another reality. Into somebody else's life. And not just their personal life, but also the life of their people. Um, Which is very, very important. That... Also one of the things that I learned in my thesis, which was, in cons- which was consistent with what I had experienced at Seeds of Peace, was the importance of having both interpersonal and intergroup contact in any kind of situation like this. What I mean by that is that the interpersonal contact is contact on the level of you and me as human beings talking to each other, it doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter who I am, it's like, we're people. That's it. And we don't represent anybody. doesn't matter that you come from this neighborhood or I'm from that religion. It doesn't matter. Like, we're both tenors, and now we're going to sing together whatever song. That's the interpersonal level. The intergroup level is with those same two people saying, okay, so we, like, did that thing as tenors, but you're also Palestinian and I'm Israeli, and... You are Muslim, and I am Jewish, and our lives are different. And we were taught different things in school, and we were taught different things by our parents. And I want to tell you what I think this city looks like or should look like. And then I want to hear from you what you think and what you grew up being taught. And that's the intergroup level where you're using that individual human being as a window into a whole other experience Um, and not just an experience of that individual but an experience of that individual as a representative of a group where what I learned from you about what you were taught in school as a Palestinian I can then learn as part of the Palestinian narrative not just like what you believe um so that's very interesting. So that's, it's really important to have both of those kinds of interaction, and I think that's one of the reasons why the chorus has been successful and has been able to weather a lot of the challenges that have afflicted Jerusalem in the last five years. Like, we met through the Gaza War in 2014, and we met actually more during the war because people asked for more dialogue sessions because they were saying such horrible things about each other on Facebook. They wanted a chance to like, actually talk it out, which was awesome. Um, so I felt like in that context, then like, we must be doing something right. So what sort of things do you find
0: come up a lot when, when teenagers, Israeli and Palestinian teenagers are asked, uh, what does the city look like and what should the city look like?
1: Well, I'm not in most of the dialogue sessions. We have a team of professional facilitators who run the dialogue process. So I can't really tell you that, per se. Um, What I can say is why they come to the chorus and why they continue coming to the chorus and what kinds of things about that experience I know they wish were more present in Jerusalem, outside the chorus. I think the first thing that's critical is that they feel that the chorus is a place where people accept them for who they are, regardless of where they come from, regardless of whether they're cool or not, regardless of whether they have money or not, regardless of whether they speak whatever the language of power is, regardless of whether they're of the same religion or same nationality or whatever, that like people accept one another for having the opinions that they have, without sort of saying, you have no right to have that opinion. That it's an open space where people really respect one another and love one another. And that, I think, is something that certainly is not the dominant reality in Jerusalem. I would say Jerusalem is a city that's characterized by putting people in boxes. And building walls between yourself and others who are different from you across any line whether that's a religious line a national line a line of gender a line of whatever it's like if you're different from me then like we should be as separated as possible um and i should like own this space and you shouldn't right i feel like that's a dominant paradigm in jerusalem And one of the things that the chorus is trying to do is create an alternate reality. Even in a small microcosm of what Jerusalem could be, that if people had the opportunity to really meet as equals and to create something beautiful together and build relationships, and ultimately see that the kind of space that's created is one that's better for everyone, then I think the city could look a lot different if there were more spaces for people to do that. But right now, the dominant reality is one of separation. It is one of inequality, profound inequality, across national, religious, gender, socioeconomic lines. And it is not one that encourages collaboration. It is one that discourages doing anything with anyone who's different from you. And I think that's a great shame and it causes a lot of injustice and a lot of offense and a lot of suffering to a lot of people. So in the chorus, I think the reasons why really, I think that's the number one thing that people cite is like why they continue to come back to the chorus is because it feels like a home for them which again brings you back to the song that we opened with is like home. I'm going to, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about the lyrics of that song, they really speak to the chorus process. It says settle down. It'll all be clear. Don't pay no mind to the demons. They fill you with fear trouble. It might drag you down. If you get lost, you can always be found. Just know you're not alone. Cause I'm going to make this place your home, which is really, I mean, again, we didn't write that that's Philip Phillips genius, but, um, it really describes exactly what the chorus is and it really is a home for the singers in the chorus. And that's why they come back. Um, Despite the fact that people outside might tell them that it's bad or that they're traitors or give them a hard time or, you know, one singer even switched schools to stay in the chorus. (gasps) Um, That basically her friends were like, okay, you can choose like being friends with us or leaving the chorus. And she's like, I'm going to stay in the chorus. So she switched schools. Um So it's a very powerful thing for these kids. And it's a very powerful thing for me also to see and to be able to experience and to be able to be a part of. Um, the thing that we haven't talked about yet is, of course, the performance element, which is the third part of the chorus model, that we use the music as a way of building community, and we use the dialogue as a way of taking that to the next level in terms of the inner group understandings. And then the performance part provides a common goal, which is critical, that people actually are working together to create something beautiful together. And it creates a platform for spreading the messages of the group at the same time through our performances. Both our live performances and our vir- virtual performances, whether that's like through a music video or through our new album or Um, And that's really important because people are actually proud of what they create. Because we're actually, it's not just like a cute program, but we actually create music that's worth listening to. So when the kids are on stage or when they're in the recording studio, they, you know, are really proud of what they are doing. And they're proud of what they have to offer. And they're proud to be part of a group like this. And that is really important. So I want to take us back a couple of steps here
0: uh, and talk about that creation of home mm. for the teenagers in the choir. And I'm interested in this uh, in a practical sense, for like what you actually did. And also in, in the broader sense of a lot of people, in one way or another, find, find ourselves in situations where we're divided by race or gender or language or politics, and the really easy thing to do is to knuckle down into, into those groups and build walls. And so, for those of us who are either in, in, in a little uh, bunker ourselves, or for those of us who are walking into a room where we have some element of influence, and we see a lot of bunkers, and we see a lot of people who naturally want to stay in their clusters. What what's, did you find uh, with Squire? What sort of lessons really came through with you
1: regarding like dealing with that sort of situation? I think the most important thing, really in any situation, but particularly situations where people are coming from different places is to meet people where they are rather than saying this person should believe what I believe because it's true even if it is true um, maybe they don't and certainly science and, and, and particularly with all of the political strife right now in the US people are sharing more and more of these sort of videos about how not to change somebody's opinion. And the best way to not change somebody's opinion is to confront them with the facts that they're wrong. Um, because then they just double down and say, no, well, you're wrong. <laughs> um, it doesn't matter if you've destroyed their argument. Um, that it's really important to build emotionally a sense of that person that you and they are on the same team even if you're divided by one thing, that there's something else that unites you. And then from that relationship to engage in a dialogue, where dialogue is different from argument, in that the goal is not to win, but the goal is to listen. Not just to listen one way, but ideally that both people will be listening and sharing, But not with a goal by the end to win an argument. Um, And that's really, really important. Even if at the end you're trying to influence somebody. Even if at the end you're trying to kind of win. But if you go into it saying, like, I'm going to beat you, then, like, they're not going to listen to you. Because nobody wants to have their opinion changed. They have an opinion because they think they're right. It's the definition of an opinion. Um... So I think that that's really important, is to go into things, even in situations where it's extremely difficult to do so, with as much empathy and as much openness as possible. Um, that doesn't mean one needs to, like, compromise on your own beliefs. And that doesn't mean that you need to say, oh, well, truth all of a sudden is relative. but If you're trying to work with somebody who's coming from a different place, you need to meet them where they are, rather than saying they need to meet me where I am. If they can, great. But if they can't, and you're still trying to work with them, then you need to work with them in a way that works for them.
0: Okay, so practically speaking, how does... For you, it was the the thing in in common originally for your camp was being a seed of peace. Mm -hmm. And in the choir, it's being part of the choir. Yeah. What are some other examples, real world, that you can see of people
1: getting into a sort of emotional situation that transcends their boundaries? Well, I mean, if you think about the U.S. right now, as an American, like the U.S. is on my mind a lot right now. And what's so distressing is that we already have a built-in shared identity as Americans, but people seem to have lost whatever grounding that provided um, and that has been replaced by basically political beliefs or skin color or immigrant status or sexual orientation or whatever. Um, I think ultimately you know, in the U.S., that there's a great advantage that people have that at least at the end of the day, we're all part of the same country. You know, it's not like in Jerusalem where you have two peoples who are engaged in a generations-long ethnic conflict. Like, it's slightly different. Slightly different. Not that the U.S. is not grounded on generations of ethnic persecution and conflict, but it's a different scenario and at the end of the day everyone's still an American but what that means it seems to me is now sort of up for grabs and uh, that's both a challenge and an opportunity I think it's a challenge in that people have lost in a lot of ways the sense that we're all on the same team but it's an opportunity to redefine what it means to be an American in a way that is more inclusive And I say more inclusive in a sense, like really in all senses. More inclusive both along, and that that sort of cuts both ways. It cuts in terms of like race or um, in terms of like liberal ideas, but it also is in terms of class and sort of different values that like ultimately if we're trying to create a group that works then it needs to be inclusive
0: great i was hoping we could uh close with some practical advice for um for maybe young people who want to start programs and who might look up to you as as the founder of uh, such a successful organization in such a difficult climate what if you, what sort of advice would you give to someone who wanted to create something of this pattern—a dialogue system between people—in the face of obvious difficulties?
1: What I would say is, do your research, and do your research the same way you would if you were starting a company. Like, do like market research. Like, go to the place where you want to start whatever the program is, or if it's your home, then great. If it's not, then go there. And actually see why people do what they do. And not just why you believe they should be in your, in your program, but why they should want to be in your program, given what they currently want, not given what they should want. Um, and if you can meet them where they are, then you can have a place to start. Because then people will want to join you.
0: Okay, and once you've got everyone in the same room, how do you make it the first step towards something better rather than another uh, mini-civil
1: war? Um, I think that comes down again to the model, and I think it's critical, and this is based on not just my experience but also on the social psychology literature on intergroup encounters, that you have both interpersonal and intergroup contact in a context where everyone has a common goal that they're working towards, that they care about. Um, And if you have those three elements, then you've got a pretty good shot. If you don't, then you have a much less good shot. Okay. Uh, What are
0: some
1: uh, pitfalls to avoid starting out something like this? I mean, some pitfalls would be obviously not doing what I just said to do. Um, I think another pitfall would be trying to expose the group to sort of the public too soon. Like, if, if you're trying to create a safe space, that's, like, really critical. And if people aren't comfortable with what they've done and then all of a sudden you're like going to the press, then people could start freaking out. Um, We, again, went to press pretty soon, but we started and have concentrated, honestly, on more sort of international press as opposed to local press. Because international press is safer. Because people at home are less likely to read it and then bully you in school the next day. And that was a deliberate choice in the beginning, and now we're sort of interested in both, but, um, you know, things happen the way they happen. Um, Another thing is that we don't let any journalists into dialogue, ever. Because dialogue is a safe space, and it's not a space for somebody to then be able to use what you say against you or even if they're not going to, just to have the feeling like you don't know if they're going to use what they say against you, what you say against you. Um, Because the point of dialogue, again, is that it's a safe space where people can be free to say what they believe without being judged. And you can only create that safe space with the people who are in the room if you've already built an expectation with those people that those are the ground rules of the discussion. But you can't do that with, like, every random person who comes into the room and wants to, like, listen to see, like, what Israelis and Palestinians think about each other. Um, So that's another really important thing, is to respect the feelings and need for safety of the people who are in this group. Because doing anything like this takes a lot of courage. And you have to be really brave to go against your society or to go against your community to try to create something new. And so to also respect that.
0: Okay, cool. Well, Micah, I'd love to take us out with another of the wonderful songs from the YMCA Jerusalem Youth Chorus.
1: Cool. Do you have uh, something in particular you'd like to share with us? Um, sure. I'm thinking what would be the most appropriate for building Jerusalem, thematically speaking. And I would say, um, yeah, maybe our mashup, our mashup for change is good. We take a bunch of different pop songs and put them all together, but they're all pop songs with a very specific message. And uh, they're a message of really acting, and being there for those who are different from you. Great. So, let's do it.
0: All right, we're just going to hit that. If anyone wants to hear more of your music or support the YMCA Jerusalem
1: Youth Chorus in some way, what would you recommend? Go to our website, www.jerusalemyouthchorus.org, and you can hear our music, you can watch our music videos, you can order our new album... You can support us in other ways. You can volunteer. You can help bring the chorus to your country or city. Um, There are all kinds of ways that you can get involved. That URL again? Jerusalemyouthchorus.org Great. Thanks
0: so much. Thanks, Ike. From Jerusalem, I'm General Ike. I've been here today with Micah Hendler, the founder of the YMCA Jerusalem Youth Chorus. And this is the Jerusalem Youth Chorus... With mashup for change. Some nights I stay up cashing in my bad love Some nights I call it a draw. Some nights I wish that my lips could build a castle. Some nights I wish they just fall off. That I still wake up, I still see your ghost. Oh Lord, I'm still not sure what I stand for. oh For most nights I don't
1: Change. Oh.
0: Look at yourself and make a change Stay with me